The reason why you have longevity in a career is that you're passionate about this. I, I wake up every morning, I'm more passionate about software than, you know, the day I saw the NCSA Mosaic browser in 1994, right? That's like, gosh, that's going on 30 years. Like I'm the same person in a lot of ways. Um, and I would just kind of recommend that things that you're passionate about, go, go deeper into again and, and enjoy it. Welcome to Passion Play Profits. I'm your host, Peter Liu. And today I'll be interviewing young and grizzled entrepreneurs to teach you how to find your passion, play, enjoy, persevere in the game of business, and get rewarded for it. I'm privileged and honored today to be joined by George Matthew, who's a managing director at Insight Partners. Um, he focuses on venture investments in AI, machine learning, analytics, and data. He has over 20 plus years of experience developing high growth technology startups, including most recently being the CEO of Caspery. And then prior to Caspery, George was the president and COO of Alterix, where he scaled the company through its IPO and driven company strategy, led product development, and built sales and marketing teams. So George Matthew, please welcome to the show. And let's talk about how you've turned your passion to play profit. For sure. Appreciate it, Peter. Looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So the first question I always like to ask is about your childhood and more so your upbringing. What did you do in your childhood to lead you to study your major at Cornell, which was neurobiology? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm glad you asked. So so I guess um, just quick drive by of my childhood. I was born in Kerala in India um, and my mom and dad immigrated when I was about four years old and we came to New York. When we immigrated uh, for the first few years, we were upstate New York, um, not as far upstate as, as Ipka is, but in Poughkeepsie, and then ended up settling on Long Island, uh, which is where I pretty much grew up, like many compatriots at Cornell, uh, like we came from Long Island, I think it's still about 20% of uh, all of uh, Cornell uh, you know, classmates are, are from Long Island. So I grew up uh, in a public school environment, um, right out right out by Stony Brook University, um, so far out in the island, and a lot of my uh, call it passion as a child was just you know just generally being like very curious about how things worked, and that was always my 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 passion. And at that time, you know, I was really sort of engaged in this sort of passion of like, okay, how does the human body work? How does um, you know biological systems work? And um, of course, I had a chance to really focus my attention there and join the class of um, what was 1995 uh, is when I graduated. So that would have been 1991 that I came to Ithaca. And uh, I, I did, actually didn't apply anywhere else to school. I just uh, applied early decision to Cornell to, you know, be in the biology program and eventually ended up uh, concentrating in neurobiology and behavior. Uh, and joined um, the process in 1991 as a freshman, and through that experience, it was it was incredible, right? Just to you know be able to you know be with some of the best you know professors and and the best sort of uh, classmates in the world, learning about all things related to neurobiology. But there was there was an aspect of neurobio that I got really intrigued by when I was um, you know kind of working my way to to med school and, and studying for my cats my junior year. And really that came down to like how how computational systems and biological systems really came together. And I started to, you know, you know, teach myself how to be a programmer because um, some of the work that was happening at that moment in neurobiology was to really model out what a neural receptor, neural transmitter relationship looks like. And to be able to best model that, you have to, you know, understand how to how to really Composed models in three-dimensional space, and of course, to compose models in three-dimensional space, you need to know OpenGL. To know OpenGL, you need to know C plus plus, right? And so, I just had to learn C plus plus to, you know, start to do some basic modeling in in OpenGL at that time. And so, the summer of between my junior and senior year, and I saw the NCSA Mosaic browser, which a guy named Mark Andreessen, which you probably know who that is, um, shipped in 1994. And I was working at Cornell Information Technologies uh, with, for my summer job while I was studying for my MCATs. And I saw the the, the browser and my, my heart skipped a beat. And I'm like, what is that? And I got to go like, find out what that is. I literally called my mom the next week and uh, told her I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to go figure out what that thing is, being the NCSA Mosaic browser. And uh, yeah, that's how my sort of focus in all things related to software and, and internet-based systems started as early as 1994, 1995. With a lot of students nowadays, right? Um, there's kind of a chasm, I guess, between practice and between theory. 
Um, and with such a, I guess, theoretical field like neurobiology, right? It's hard to jump into that right out of college. But for you, you went right into e-commerce consulting, right? Um, what was the initial spark for you to go into e-commerce consulting out of university? And how did you eventually, you know, land upon that role for that opportunity? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it, so so if we trace the pathway here, right? I was, you know, studying for my MCATs. I saw the NCSM was very browser. I was like, oh, this internet thing is going to be compelling, and I'm I'm seriously interested in it. I didn't have a lot of jobs to go do if I wasn't going to go to med school and I wasn't going to be a researcher, particularly in computational bio at that time, because that wasn't really a thing, right? Um, of course, like, you know, you flash forward another 15, 20 years later, and that is genuinely a thing. I could have actually you know, gone into a field like that. But at that time, you know, I had to take a little bit more of a pragmatic view. And I also had to take a view that like, okay, I am passionate about this thing called the internet that's emerging. Um, and where could I get the most experience doing that? And it turns out like it was building e-commerce systems. So um, I ended up, um, you know, landing a summer internship that was, you know, really focused at that time uh, as a subsidiary of Silicon Graphics. Uh, and Silicon Graphics had some of the best biological systems and computing uh, capabilities in the world at that moment. It was like the, the company that, you know, if you think about from a graphical computing standpoint, uh, was the sort of originator of many graphical computing capabilities. Um, you know, it was like NVIDIA before <laughs> NVIDIA was there. They had like accelerated chips and, you know, they had sort of a focused hardware software play. And some of the, you know, the best software that ran on it was was not only the biological systems, um, you know, software, but it also turned out it was a little company at that time that was building um tools for the World Wide Web uh, called Netscape. And Netscape ended up uh, building a set of servers and tools, including the NCSA Mosaic browser, which became, of course, the Netscape browser, that um, was placed on Silicon Graphics machines, first and foremost. And that's how you know I started to go into e-commerce. We were building e-commerce systems right at the dawn of the internet. And initially, it was on the hardware side and working you know for subsidiary of um, Silicon Graphics. And about a year into that, a number of us who were building systems at that time were like, well, you know, there's this like emerging concept of like what e-commerce from a software standpoint could look like an e-commerce as a category could be. And we were like, well, we want to go focus on the software side of things. And of course, you know, working at a hardware vendor at that time, they didn't even know how to spell software. And um, literally a year into my first job, um, we left as seven founders and started Fork Point Partners um, taking, I think it was like at that time, a $5 million term sheet from Excel. And um, Excel, you know, partners, you know, still one of the preeminent venture capital firms in the world was one of our first investors. And uh, we all left to, to start to build, you know, the e-commerce systems of those days and ended up building Best Buy and Nike and J. Crew And so these brands are all around and even Martha Stewart. Um, and so, so that was like the critical experience of looking at like the first burgeoning internet, even before Amazon was really coming about at scale and building the first brand-based e-commerce systems, you know, for some of the greatest brands in the world, even to this day. And gosh, you learned a lot um, by just being a builder in the middle of all that. And that was, you know, my job for a a good eight years of my life from, from basically 1995, 96, all the way to 2000. Wow. That's, that's insane, George. Um, to hear that you've been there for eight years out of university and still at that exact same, you know, spot, right. Building that company up from scratch. And it seems like you continued with that trend um, of online sales, right. By being a director of technical uh, account management at Salesforce. Um, what led you to make that transition, right. Having, you know, been mm -hmm. so solidified within your previous role um, and, you know, eventually, making the turn to join a bigger company yeah i mean the, the biggest thing was the e-commerce boom and bust right <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or the you know dot-com boom and bust to be more more, more broad in, in the statement i think when you look at where things were back in 2000 2001 it was all you know similar to some of the boom cycles we've seen more recently it was all rainbows and unicorns right and then after you know 9-11 certainly going into you know 2001 2002 you started to see really a a really challenging down cycle. And at that time, we had to make hard choices as a consulting business in this space 
you know, what do you do with a consulting business when there's less people buying consulting, you know, in a market that was, you know, still there, but not necessarily as vibrant as it was even a few years back. And the hard choice at that time was was to now become a software business, right? And and to really push the envelope of everything that we learned in terms of uh, merchandising optimization, landing page testing optimization, turn that all into software. And the founders um, really wanted me to come back and do that. I had actually moved back to New York City from the Bay Area in 1998, 99, predominantly to open up our offices at Four Point to you know, build J, J. Crew and IKD, Best Buy, and, and we have a team of about 100 people. And as we had to contract in the middle of a downturn and turn parts of our, that business into software, the, the sort of focus was to, of course, um, go back to the Bay Area to go build the software business. And it was at that time where I was you know, kind of planted in New York for that moment, and it wasn't quite the time for me to move and ended up saying, well, look, I've been working at the same company for the last eight plus years. You know, maybe it's it's an opportunity to do something a little bit different. It turned out that it wasn't a bigger company at that moment when I joined Salesforce. I actually joined Salesforce when it was like less than 175 people. Um, and a friend of mine who worked at Fortpoint um, ended up joining a tiny little company that was working on CRM in the cloud. And turned out that was Salesforce.com. And I joined Salesforce in 2003. And it was a rocket ship, right? We went from 175 people to 1,600 people in three years. And we took the company public um, in 04, 05. And yeah, it was just a wild, wild uh, three plus years at Salesforce. Yeah. Um, crazy to think at 2003, Salesforce was only 175 people. Um, definitely puts into perspective, right? It's barely a, you know, startup at that point, um, burgeoning. So, you know, afterwards, you kind of made a pivot, right? Um, from more of the operating side to the investing side um, as you know, a GVP and a GM for business of business intelligence at SAP, um, where you've led to investments in Exact Target and Alterx. So, you know, comparing and contrasting perhaps some of the you know deal cycles you've seen, right, at Insight and you know, what you had to go through uh, you know, at SAP at that time, all the way in 2006, um, you know, what were some differences and yeah. what led you to make those two investments? Um, yeah, you know, and, and just just to be clear of how that all played out, I was yeah. still very much a builder and operator during Got those it. periods of time, and it turned out that I had my first taste of doing investments, particularly from a corporate investment standpoint. And the first taste of it was working on the exact target deal when it didn't come to fruition when I was still at Salesforce.com, and we were looking at acquiring the exact target when it was like less than twenty six million in run rate. Uh, eventually, Salesforce did acquire it after I left at two hundred sixty million in run rate, and uh, it became, you know, marketing cloud effectively for Salesforce, right? Um, and so that was like my, my first real exposure to what a investment and in this case, a corporate acquisition could could certainly look like. And then um, to your point on Alteryx in a very similar way, um, a few years later after business school and um, joining SAP and when I was um, still building and growing things uh, at a little bit more scale at that time, I became the general manager for the entire BI division for SAP after the business objects acquisition. I was part of the team that acquired business objects um, and, you know, sort of had progressively increased my roles and responsibilities in those in those four or five years. Um, I got another big angle and taste into what investments would look like when I worked with Sapphire, which is the you know arm of SAP that was really focused on ventures. At that time, it was known as Sapphire Ventures. And we looked at... Um, a player in the geospatial BI arena, and it was a tiny little company called Alfreds, which I didn't know at that time, and uh, it became, you know, the, the kind of co-pilot, the thought partner with uh, one of the leaders at Sapphire at that time, Jay Das, um, who's now the president of Sapphire Ventures, um, to go put the first Series A dollars to work. Uh, for Alteryx, and it turned out to be a six million dollar investment that we made at eighty million post money valuation, and uh, of course that you know blossomed quite quite nicely. Um, enough so that I was um, intrigued by the market opportunity that emerged at that moment to uh, leave uh, after five and a half years at at, at SAP and the prime of my career uh, right before even making uh, senior vice president to go become president of, of Alteryx. And of course, that was um, hard, as all early stage startup journeys are. But um, eventually, we did figure out what our product market fit was and our scale and, and what, what it took to, to build something um, all the way to the point of first taking it public in the 
2016 timeframe is when I wrote the S1 and you know, to the public in, in 2017 at about a hundred million run rate. Um, and then subsequently, you know, even today, Altrix is now a billion dollar uh, revenue business still growing in the public markets. That's amazing. It's amazing, George. And, you know, perhaps during your time, right, at Alterix, when you were running the company, you know, it's an insane feat to take it for, you know, from that time, right, uh, a Series A investment all the way to an IPO, um, seeing it all the way through to the destiny land, right, the promised land of what VCs are looking for. Um, you know, was that always top of mind for you, um, that end date for that IPO? You know, uh, when you joined the company, how did you, you know, eventually think about uh, making that transition to go public? Um, when did it first come into your mind? Was it in the beginning or you know later on? Um, how that conversation happened? Yeah, I, I think some founders and builders, you know, go into their journeys presuming that oh, clearly we're going to go public and that's going to be the outcome. But you know, I don't think I went into it with that mindset. I, I to be honest, went into it with a mindset that there was an interesting corner of the market, which was initially you know, very much focused on in-memory data processing and with a sort of book visualization layer and eventually what the, what the data processing layer would look like. And Tableau had taken the visualization layer and self-service analytics, which, you know, of course, did quite well before it got bought by for $14 billion by by Salesforce. And and I start to think, well, what happens to all the data prep blending modeling? Like, what's the, what's the original problem that needs to be solved next in that market? And really, that was the, 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 the real thoughtful moment around the thesis to, to go, you know, really focus on, on, on taking Altrix in that direction. And, you know, we had a year where we almost ran out of money because there was uh, a few things that we had like uh, misappropriated in terms of how we planned for what the revenue would be coming in the door versus where the product was. And um, we had to go back to Sapphire um, at that time. And uh, a few other investors kind of joined that, that round to um, basically save us um, because we almost ran out of money. But then, you know, we, we, we actually did do many of the right things from that moment on and had the product market fit that was necessary, which is um, which is how Insight came in and led the Series B. Um, and that's how I actually got to know Insight quite well. And of course, uh, now I'm a, I'm a partner at Insight uh, you know, a few years down the pike. But but I think in, in these journeys, like they're not that... Um, wired to say hey we're gonna go public like no it's like we're gonna you know get to a certain phase oh god we misplanned we ran out of money we had to go raise more capital but um then we found another sort of plateau to build and grow the company from then you know acquirers came to to go acquire the company we had a failed acquisition um you know from a very big player um who you know is Still in the software systems space, um, and then uh, after all that, uh, we said, "Well, look, you know, we've got enough of a story here, and uh, enough of a market, and enough of a brand that we could actually take this business public." And and then we did, and and then I, I actually left right after we took it public, but then it grew another, you know, sort of factor, right, hundred million to a billion, um, you know, uh, after we took it public. But but I don't think uh, the journey necessarily is as precise as, hey, I'm going to go do this. I'm, I'm going to get it done. It's actually a little bit more undulating and um, you know, up and down in how it eventually gets to these outcomes. And certainly that was a, a really good outcome. I see. I see. And kind of speaking on that, you know, pendulating, highly dynamic, you know, mode, right, of mindset uh, at this company, um, you know, on a very high level, right? Soft skills, leadership is incredibly important. And, you know, being the leader of this company, uh, it's hard, right? Um, especially as it changes with increasing headcount, more risk, more responsibility. Um, you know, how are you able to, I guess, transition between leading, I guess, just a Series A startup, right? Um, which is more nimble to something that is, you know, fully public. What were, mm -hmm. you know, some mm -hmm. characteristics that you had to drop, some that you had to learn? Um, perhaps what's the lesson that you had to learn the hard way uh, during your time as a leader at this company? Yeah, I think when you start these journeys, you're very much, you know, the leader that has to bring the best ideas forward, right? And differentiate your product, your service as, you know, an idea-driven differentiation to where the market is at that at that moment. And, and and that can get you a long way, by the way. And and many great founders, you know, are generally differentiated by ideas, or you know, particularly in the early part of their journey. The transition from being a founder or early stage builder 
in my case, um, and then becoming, you know, what I, you know, I, I came in as president CEO, but I didn't really earn the title and, and really do the things I needed to do as president CEO until the company really started to scale. But that transition that happens um, and to truly become, you know, the CEO uh, slash CEO or president of a business like that versus being the founder or co-founder of those businesses or an early stage builder of those businesses is that you have to now have the mindset of going from, you know, being the idea leader to being the engine builder, right? And so the, what I mean by engines are like, you have to have the mindset of, okay, what is that product and development engine that makes it possible to, you know, sort of articulate the things that the market needs in a meaningful way that you're building that product that is gonna really have the product market fit. Um, you have to be the leader that really understands um, then how to package that, right? How to price it, how to, then go ahead and bring the right sales force and the marketing organization that's necessary. And oftentimes when you're doing that, you can't necessarily do that all yourself, right? When you're, you're ending up having to have incredible leaders under you kind of drive those functions and you're kind of being the connectivity, the glue that makes sure that the factory from, you know, the build of the engine from the start of that, that, that factory um, in the product goes all the way to the completion of that engine. You know, in the go-to-market, and 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 keep yourself accountable for 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 that success um, that happens, or the failures that happen in between. And I think that's the tricky thing for anyone who starts as an idea person, right? And and I think most people who know me, you know, know me as a relatively you know good idea person. But I also had to kind of shift my mindset um, to become much more process and engine builder focused than just kind of being an idea guy. And I think that's a, that's a pretty important part of the journey for any founder as they're scaling their business. Absolutely. And especially nowadays, right, um, with more venture firms looking for operators instead of just pure play investors, right, that's done investing their entire life. I think your background is very suited for this kind of revolution um, of what they're looking for, right? Um, so, you know, just to kind of continue down, you know, your path as an operator as well, you know, you're very restless as a whole and joined another company called Kespri, um, right mm -hmm. afterwards, right. Doing aerial surveillance, um, intelligence platforms, uh, in, you know, many different industries, right. In construction, insurance, yeah. mining, et cetera. Keep so, in mind, my, my restlessness happens every like five years or so. So it's not like, I'm like, you know, kind of running from one place to the other in a few years, like literally it was five and a half years of intense time of building SAP's business objects division, and then five and a half years of Altrix, and then of course the four years that I had at Casper. But yes, continue, continue the, uh, the yes. question about my <laughs> restlessness. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, but I guess, you know, where, wh why make that transition again, right? Um, you know, some would stop, right? Or take the check, whatever it is, go back home, you know, enjoy family time, uh, and then, you know, for the rest of their lives. But, you know, mm -hmm. props to you for keep on going, pushing and continuing. So. You know, I guess it's a two-part question, but you know, throughout this entire career as a whole, right? What exactly is it that motivates you to continue pushing even after success, and to keep you hungry? And on top of that, right? Um, perhaps you know, what was your experience like at Kesbury, right? And what changes did you make, perhaps on day one? Um, you know, as the uh, CEO and chairman uh, when you did get to the company. So it's a yeah. two-part question, but you can answer, you know, in however you like. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say the narrative of even when you ask the question of like where my journey started at Cornell to where things are today, I think the commonality is that I was always intensely curious about things, right? How things were built, how things worked. And, you know, no surprise when, you know, the opportunity came up to become, you know, president and, you know, CEO for Altrix and then, you know, of course, CEO, chairman of Casper. Uh, the curiosity around Casper was like, oh, like, artificial intelligence based autonomous system that can go collect all kinds of information in and around the field of vision um, around all kinds of assets, particularly like industrial assets. Oh, that's kind of different from, you know, the things I've done in the past, but it has a really compelling analytical angle to it. And frankly, there's some things that I've always wanted to really dig my, you know, like my, my hands into when it came to machine learning and artificial intelligence that I didn't quite see in my experience up to that point, particularly being at a place like business objects or, or even a place like, you know, Altrix, which is kind of defined as still service analytics space. So I kind of went in with the, okay, yes, I'm, you know, first time CEO and chairman, but I'm also now trying to really understand how to build a, 
deep learning model, right, that can process seven, eight petabytes of image video data and be able to understand what the classification models look like for identifying, you know, anomalies in the field of vision and just become really robust about understanding how computer vision models work at that moment. And it turned out like, um, you know, the hardship around Caspery was like, you know, they started as a hardware business. I had to shift it into software and um, the market for hardware had gotten commoditized by DJI and the software value was, 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 was what was really where the opportunity was. And certainly we, we, we built a, a pretty compelling, you know, business that eventually got sold uh, about a year after I left, but, um, you know, we scaled it in a way where the hard, difficult things that happen when a market changes, like from a dramatic shift, like from hardware to software, we're able to kind of bring the team all the way through that. And then the other thing is that I just personally learned a lot. Like, I, I don't think I would have been as understanding of what it took to build AI systems at scale. And particularly when the emergence of transformers and LMs, particularly in the last sort of two years, really popped. It wasn't like I was like trying to go back to the books and like trying to figure out what a transformer is. I was like, oh, of course I know what a autoregressive, you know, deep learning model that uses attention-based learning, you know, with, um, you know, reinforcement um, as its core um, is, right? Because I just kind of had those building blocks, you know, running up to the moment that it happened, um, particularly being as an investor. So, so for me, I still kind of go back to the, point of curiosity like i don't try to optimize for outcomes although i guess hindsight in 2020 some of these outcomes have worked out reasonably well quite a few of them have but but i try to optimize for just like learning and being curious like the things that like cornell teaches us all very well like that's the things that i try to you know optimize for and uh you know i guess i'm at, at a point where i can be passionate about whatever i want and yeah. now um it happens to be like investing and all things related to yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's dive into that. Um, you know, kind of guiding along the theme of curiosity, right? I'm curious about, you know, how beneficial actually is your operating background to, you know, the entire world of investing, right? I'm sure you have a lot of peers that are, you know, peer investors, right, that have been investing their entire lives and haven't, mm -hmm. you know, been in the operating space. Um, perhaps, you know, what do you notice as one of the key differences between you versus them in terms of the questions that you ask, things that you can see that others can't? Or perhaps, you know, the other way around, right? That others can see that you can't see. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, love to see, hear your insights from there. So so what I've realized being an investor now, particularly in an earlier stage VC context in, in, a, in a firm that has you know, tremendous scale, is that it's one of the very few jobs where it doesn't matter how you got there, but like you have to learn quite a bit of new things when you when you get into a role like this. Um, but it's also, it doesn't, there's no like real prerequisites necessarily to becoming a great investor. Um, the only job that was closest to that in my life, I felt was being a product manager, right? It's like, it doesn't really matter how product managers got to where they got to. I mean, even my time as a product manager, it, you know, they, people came from customer success, they came from sales, they came from engineering, they, they came from marketing, um, and they became like, you know, some, some pretty profoundly amazing product managers. Uh, I think investors are, are very similar that way. There is definitely a path to, you know, becoming an investor right out of college and you go through like, you know, an incredible analyst program at like a, you know, pick your program that you want to go to, whether it be on the consulting side of the Bain or BCG or Booz Allen um, or McKinsey uh, and, or you go down the you know route of being an analyst at a, at an investment bank and, and you go to, you know, Goldman and Morgan and then, you know, you take that and you land a role in private equity and you do the, you know, whatever, two to three years stint in private equity. You might go to business school. You might still kind of go off the part of your track um, and eventually kind of land into, you know, being uh, an investment partner. The the other adventure is no surprise, the, the, the route that I took, which is, which is I, I was, you know, most VCs are more of the type that I am. And most private equity folks are more of the type that um, you know kind of goes up the, the invest banking to to private equity route. But um, but I kind of went down the route of like okay, being just an intensely curious builder and always having a hand in how investment decisions were being done, whether it be internal, whether it be strategic, you know, sort of investments that were 
you know, done by bigger organizations like SAP or, you know, eventually now, you know, becoming a investor, of, you know, an $80 billion uh, growth equity venture capital firm like Insight. And I think in all those cases, um, what I've noticed is that, you know, my, you know, call it experience out of like having built stuff in the past is super helpful. But, you know, guess what? I had to also like go back, you know, two years ago and just get really comfortable with how, you know, a financial model is built, you know, and even though I went to business school, like I forgot some of that stuff and I had to like go back and like, just, you know, really understand, you know, what it took to, you know, take a customer file and cut it and to look at, you know, what the, you know, the valuation uh, assignments that we were kind of looking at, because like, those were the term sheets that, you know, myself and my team were writing, you know, starting in 2020 onward. So, uh, you know, kind of going in one route and closing yourself off, that operating experience because you came up through investment bank and financial analyst oriented route, or if you were an operator and um, you kind of came in later in your career, like somehow you should not be very well versed in the the, the, the models that, that that are required to to really understand what what um, what venture capital growth equity and private equity look like. I think you just have to you know be thoughtful and curious enough to learn as you go. And um, what you haven't learned along the way in the journey that got you to that point, you just have to pick it up when you're in the role. And that's what I tried to do, at least in the last three years that I've been at that makes sense. I want to ask, you know, deeper, right, into the recruiting element of insight. And I'm sure that's, you know, one of the biggest reasons why a lot of people are here. You know, if, let's just say, we were to take you all the way back to, you know, when you were 22, 21 at Cornell, and you wanted to join the firm straight out of college, right? As a lot of us do. Well, well, I, well, I didn't. Let me be clear. Like, I was not that person. But, yes, but, I know. But yes, I know. I, let me let me let me help <laughs> right. me answer. But and by the way, like I, I I came back the last two years to Cornell, and you know, the, uh, in Elabs, we, we did uh, insight recruiting events, um, and I came both times, and uh, we we did sort of an hour talk similar to this one, and then and then we did the recruiting event. We'll probably do something similar uh, in. February, March as well, which is what we did the last two years. So happy to also you know, pick yeah. up some of the conversation then. But I, but I think what you're kind of asking is, what would I recommend for a 22-year-old that wants to kind of go in this path? Yes. Um, and I, I, I would just say it depends on what the path is. Um, if you truly want to be a VC, I wouldn't recommend going you know, too far down the, the financial analyst route and going to invest banking because like true VCs, like actually the best ones have built something in the past and they generally are very good at, you know, understanding product market fit and understanding how things work because that's what drives an early stage, you know, series A, series seed, um, even some series B investments. I think if you're kind of yeah, in the in-between of like, okay, you've got, you know, some interest in how that stuff works and then how, you know, the financial models and, you know, so you kind of want to have a, a mixed experience in the sense of having some operational experience, but, you know, having some investment banking or, and or consulting experience. And that, that generally lands you in a pretty compelling growth equity role. Right. And then if you're truly just a quant, right. And, and a model builder at the end of the day, I, I, I would just generally recommend you go into private equity and not even worry about growth equity and, and venture capital because you're usually looking at very mature businesses that are generating cash flow and you are looking at the understanding of what the underlying value of those businesses are and how you can improve that over time. And oftentimes that is best served by someone who's like really spent their time um, building the sort of practice um and the craftsmanship of being great at at uh, at building private equity models, um, and so I, I, again, there's a spectrum even even inside the large bucket of private equity that goes all the way from venture capital to growth equity to to, to private equity. I see. I appreciate that, George. Um, at this point, I kind of want to make the transition to open Q and A uh, for anyone in the audience to ask a question for George um, if they have any. So. You know, feel free to just raise your hand and Caroline will come, give you the mic, and uh, you can ask the question. Um, yeah, I'm a sophomore in Dyson, um, so super business heavy, don't really have a lot of technical coding experience. Um, yeah. And you kind of talked a little bit about how you were kind of the same boat where you really didn't have that kind of CS background and you wanted mm -hmm. to get into tech, which is like exactly what I am right now. I'm working yep. on a startup with my friends. And I'm like the business guy, I guess, but I also want to understand more about like how the model works and how all that kind of stuff works. So, how did you go about learning CS all on your own? And how do you think I could start doing that here at Cornell with all the resources I have? 
Yeah. So I want to be very clear about something. Computer science is not programming. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a reason I say that, right? Computer science is the knowledge and understanding of how like compilers and interpreters and like, you know, like databases and all this sort of stuff kind of builds itself. Right. Um, and that is not necessarily programming. Programming is just understanding how to articulate what you want your machine to do for you. Right. So I would highly recommend that you don't have to be a CS major to, you know, be a programmer. Right. And I would highly recommend that if you're a business person, you know what, go pick up a little bit of Python on the side because it'll get, it's going to be very useful for you to do any data analysis at the end of the day. Um, and so I think it, if you're kind of going through and not being a CS major, I don't think that is a deficit in this market. In fact, I think it's a bigger deficit if you go through and, um, gosh, you're learning English, you're probably learning, a, you know, you probably speak a second language or two, right? Well, think about this as the language that you speak to machines, right? Programming is the language you speak to machines. And if you want to, you know, work in or around this area, you should probably learn how to, you know, understand the language you speak to machines. But that's something that I think is just a little bit more fundamental. The good news right now is even if you're a bad programmer, it turns out like there's hope for you nevertheless, because there's everything related to generative AI and, and, and you know, GitHub Copilot. And you can kind of just express most of what you're thinking and code will just get punched out for you. Uh, and you just have to understand, okay, like, did your thinking align to like the code that got punched out? So I don't think it's ever been easier to talk to a machine, even if you're a terrible programmer. Um, I would just highly recommend you just engage in just learning, you know, a programming language, just like you've learned how to, you know, speak one or two human languages. Cool. Thank you so much. And quick follow-up question, like how important do you think it is to know how to program as an investor in software? I don't think eventually you need to be like a great programmer, but I think you just do need to understand some of the basics of how things come together, right? And I would say in this day and age, like, you know, having good quantitative Excel skills certainly helps, but guess what? Like, you know, there's a Python runtime compiler built into Excel. Like you could, you know, program in Python if you want, just as a sidecar to, to Excel today, right? And I so I would take those opportunities to just just immerse yourself in some of it and, and and part of that is like you know like like don't do this because like you know someone's like saying hey you should do it turn because like, you're like passionate about it because you love it right and if you don't love any of those things don't do this job at all like go, go do something else you're passionate about right? just just like i mean the reason why like you know you have longevity in a career like that you keep going is that you're passionate about this. I, I wake up every morning, I'm more passionate about software than, you know, the day I saw the NCSA Mosaic browser in 1994, right? That's like, gosh, that's going on 30 years. Like I'm the same person in a lot of ways. Um, and I would just kind of recommend that like, you know, things that you're passionate about go, go deeper into again and, and enjoy it. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hey, George. Hey, bud, how are you? Um, just uh, wanted to ask kind of the, I think the, the flip side of that question was wondering about um, as someone who's on the more technical side, studying computer science at Cornell, and you know, I spend a lot of my time trying to stay on the cutting edge, uh, building transformers and really be knowledgeable about AI the, the most I can. How do I make that transition to um, being an investor in the future if I'm starting out my career in software product? Well, I think you're you're off to a good start, um, if for what it's worth. I, I think I think uh, you, know, you know some people generally do uh, become an investor with particularly your background almost immediately after school or not too soon after. Like they they might not even spend that much time you know building anything before they they go and and become an investor. I think um, with your all of training and your background, uh, you could go build things too, right? Just okay like like this is you know we're the age of generative ai like it's bigger than the internet it's bigger than it's bigger than mobile it's bigger than cloud right so that means that like the next 10 years uh, that you have ahead of you is probably way bigger than the first 10 years that i had ahead of me so i would just try to um embrace that opportunity i mean what a what an amazing time to come out of college right i mean like this yeah, is for sure it's like this is like, you know, this is 1994, but like, I don't know, like four or five times bigger than 1994, right? maybe. Um, I, I, we were kind of half joking about this uh, when I was on stage at, at an event and, it, and people were asking like what the sort of uh, 
the size of, of the generative AI opportunity is. Mm. And, and, and I, and I was like kind of, um, a little bit, um, pejorative, but nevertheless, um, you know, I think it's not a understatement of what I'm about to say. Well, you know, look, at the very least, the size of generative AI is the size of the enterprise software market because it will literally be all consuming for all of enterprise software. And it likely could be as big as the TAM of all of humanity. Mm-hmm. So, so we're, we're in that moment where, you know, the, the TAM of what we're talking about is, you know, the smallest version of it is as big as enterprise software and the largest version of it is all of humanity. You know, yeah. embrace the moment, right? And and keep doing what you're doing, build things, um, go out to, you know, the workforce and, you know, build some things. And, you know, over time, you might find that you don't want to build things anymore and you want to go help others um, build and scale their businesses. And that's also a good moment to become an investor. Uh, or you might see yourself, you know, a year or so of doing something like this uh, and then decide, yeah, you know what, you, you want to be an investor sooner. And uh, folks, folks do that, uh, you know, very early on in their careers and they, they end up being very, very impressive investors as well. So I, I don't, yeah. what I'm trying to convey is that there isn't a, you know, like a path that you should believe is the right or wrong one. I think what you should realize is that there's multiple paths to the outcomes that you want. And I yeah. think as long as you're differentiated and passionate about what you're going to do, you'll find that, you know, path that works for you. Okay. And I, I think I'm just curious about, you know, when I do, do enter industry and, you know, being a software engineer or being on the product side, what skills to be kind of working on and improving upon outside of maybe just the the coding and technical stuff that I'm doing um, in a job that'll keep me prepared mm-hmm. for a future um sort of as an investor at, at a company like Insight or, or otherwise? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, having a clear understanding of what you build versus what you buy versus what you partner with, a portfolio strategy versus a product strategy is going to be a pretty important thing. Um, I think being very knowledgeable about how to work not only as um, someone who's delivering a product, but someone who can actually work and lead teams is going mm-hmm. to be important, right? Because uh, you certainly end up doing that, um, not only in, in an operating capacity, but also an investment capacity. I mean, you know, when a deal team comes together, I'm literally, you know, juggling, it could be, you know, as small as like three or four resources, uh, it could be as much as like, you know, 30 to 40 resources, right? And the only reason I can capably do that is because I used to lead 100 plus person teams in my past. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think I think leadership um, is a is an important trait. Um, and that's something that's hard to uh, kind of instill in yourself without having a number of runs at it, like just to, to just to do it. And uh, and so I think I think that is something you should um, pursue as you're looking at some of the more call it uh, you know sort of harder skills, the hard skills versus the soft skills. I think I think uh, leadership is one of those very important soft skills um, that, that that's going to be important as you think about your career. Okay, thank you so much. Sure. Um, hi, George. So, uh, quick question. So, as a VC, you probably get pitched startups all the time. Uh, how do you decide no. which startups I, have the most potential? I never get pitched by startups. No. Really? Um, no, I'm kidding. So, I was, I, I'm, be, I'm being facetious. Um, so, uh, how do I decide which ones um, that I? Which ones are the most potential, and like, why? What are the most common reasons why you choose to not invest in other startups? Yeah, it depends on the stage we're talking about. But in a lot of the early stage investments, oftentimes, what you're really investing in is the founder or founders plural, and the original idea that they might have, even though you likely know that there's going to be pivot, pivot, pivot from that original idea, particularly in the enterprise software space, where like, you know, the first idea is not really the one that ends up being the case. Um, but I think, I think you're really betting on, on the team and particularly the founder themselves, particularly the early stage of making an investment. Um, why I don't make an investment, particularly early stage, I, 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 I run into um something that either my spidey senses or you know from a checking backgrounds checking the, the the founder journey themselves you know outside of the conversation i'm having um i find out that there's something that doesn't work with the founder synergy with the founder uh, cohesiveness and what i've really found is like most of the 
the, the companies that have failed over time are the ones that the founders can get along with each other. The founders had some acrimony, the founders, um, you know, uh, just like any relationship, you know, runs its course and it runs its course sooner than the real outcome of the, 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 the company, the business, the, the product that you're building. And oftentimes when that happens, um, it's not the fact that there wasn't a market there, there wasn't an opportunity. It was that the, you know, the dysfunction among the founders, you know, kind of broke the opportunity from really, you know, going their way. And that was really what did the company and not necessarily that there was a competitor or there was a, you know, sort of some other market force that killed them. Um, certainly there are plenty of cases where that has happened too. So what I try to do is at least in the earliest part of an investment, like if I'm looking at mostly series seed, which I don't do that often, but when I do a seed investment, it, it's all about the team and the founder. I think when I do the series A, I try to look for the team founder plus product market fit. Um, and I'm really acutely focused on product market fit at that point. Um, but, but in the earlier investments, that that's really what you're looking for. And the later investments, it's different, right? You've got product market fit, you've got, you know, revenue, you've got, you've got a business, you've got scale, and then, you know, you could even replace your founder, um, as crazy as that sounds, but that happens, um, in this business, but, uh, in the earliest portion of the journey, you gotta, you gotta really make that team work. So just wanted a quick follow up. Um, what is your recommendation to uh, a, a new sort of uh, a founder or something um, to avoid a scenario wherein they end up having a conflict with their co-founder later on? Um, can you can you take steps right from the beginning? I think I think mostly it is to be clear with each other as co-founders, like you know what objectives are, what what are the things that are important. What are the things that will, you know, just set you off in the wrong direction? Like, and just being very clear on those things and being explicitly open with each other. And so the reason why it oftentimes works when, you know, you'll notice like founders meet in college and they, they go off and go build something like that's, there's a reason why that narrative has worked at, you know, Cornell and any other incredible institutions. Um, is because there is this pre-existing knowledge and awareness of what the foibles and the you know sort of challenges and opportunities are working together with that person and and therefore you know through any relationship you know when things get hard you don't walk out the door so so I think I think that's very similar for founder journeys and I think you know the better you know that person beforehand in a lot of ways it de-risks for yourself as a founder co-founder you know what it is to be you know in you know what invariably will be one of the most important relationships of their lives right um, besides your significant other that is going to likely be your most important relationship in your life with your relationship with your co-founders and oftentimes you know those are you know easily somewhere between half a decade to a decade Right. So, so it really does matter, you know, who's in the room with you, who's in the, who's in the trench with you. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Matthew. I'm Emma. You can call me George, Emma. <laughs> okay. Nice yeah. to meet you. Emma's my middle daughter's name. So no very familiar name. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and speaking with us. My question for you as an investor is what is the best investment you've ever made in your life. And that could be either in your career, with your time, it could be a relationship, it could be a choice. And then what was the return on that investment? Okay, well, um, uh, the, the, some investments are the ones you make, and some of them ones are the ones you don't make, right? So mm -hmm. I, I think clearly one of the best investments I made was when I saw the NCSA Mosaic browser that one week I was, uh, you know, working on campus. Uh, mm -hmm. About a week later, I called my mom, and I said, I'm not going to be a doctor. And she cried, uh, being a good Indian mother. Um, she, she did exactly what she would do in the you know mid-90s when, you know, her son was going to go into something that, you know, she or most people in the world understood. Um, and I just said, look, I'm, I'm okay with, you know, at that moment, my strong tiger mom mother crying and being <laughs> upset for not becoming a doctor. I'm going to go figure out what this thing is that I that really, really was more curious and passionate about. And that was a trade-off. Um, and it was to invest into something that was unknown at that moment to um, trade away something that was quite known, right? You know, I could have just, mm -hmm. you know, crushed my MCATs, right? And, you know, gone off to bed school. Um, right. I'm really glad I sort of closed my book. Um, you know, for studying on the MCATs that summer, 
and and you know followed the journey that I that I was on. Um, and I think I would have probably been a fine doctor, but I don't think I would have been as passionate as happy as what I'm currently doing. Um, so I think that was probably my greatest investment for sure, Emma. And I think um, I think then more you know uh, tactically speaking, as a you know call it software investor. Um, it turns out that was also uh, my first investment as a call it professional investor was weights and biases, uh, which became uh, in the last three years one of the most uh, generational tools for building all the generative AI models, transformer based models um, mm-hmm. in the market, and also enterprise customers as well as all the foundation model builders, uh, OpenAI, Codeir, and Plavik all use weights and biases to build their models. So that one um, should work out okay. And um, we'll see the returns on that in the next, uh, you know, three to five years. And so hopefully that should be my best professional investment. Um, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for your answer. Yeah. Um, hearing that it was a great investment to kind of follow your own path and your own passions is very inspiring, especially for a lot of us, like in college right now, figuring out what we want to do. So thank you so much. All right, George. It's me again. It's Peter. Hey, Peter. <laughs> uh I think it's time to wrap up. We're already over time. Um, and I really, 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 really appreciate you for joining us today and uh, giving us your insights, um, allowing me and my peers to ask you questions um, and your patience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and distilling them into liquid gold for us so that we can listen to it on this Thursday. So, you know, can't say it enough. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of remaining questions left. So if, if it's okay with you, George, um, am I allowed to share your email with uh, the rest of the students here? Or would you rather like keep it crowd private and I can you know crowdsource? Yeah, questions? just just I, I think the best thing is probably just to ping me on LinkedIn. I, I try okay. to get back to everyone uh, on LinkedIn. Um, the inside email is you know very you know heavily inside email <laughs> and inside work focus. But yeah, uh, LinkedIn is fine. Um, you know, just just ping me on on LinkedIn uh, as a starting point. And then you know, I last two years uh, we came back in the you know end of winter, beginning of uh, of spring uh, from the for the official inside recruiting event. Uh, I will almost 90% likely to come back again um, and probably do a similar, you know, Q&A kind of talk with, you know, Cornell Venture Capital Association uh, in eLabs. Are you guys in Kennedy or are you guys in, on? Uh, we're in, in C-Town. Yeah. You're in C-Town. Okay. So, so we, we, we were doing it in Kennedy and, and eLabs yeah. last two years and uh, likely we'll do it again uh, sometime yep. in March, but yeah, happy to also pick up the conversation um, after it gets uh, a little bit colder and a little bit warmer. Um, <laughs> so, so that's that, that's probably uh, another good time to catch up a little bit more. And we will be you know, coupling that with a with a recruiting event for Insight, which uh, you know we, we've had you know anywhere between two to three analysts uh, per year recently be joining Insight. So, got it. All right, man. Thank you so much, George. Uh, everyone's right, already leaving. Good to see everyone. Thanks again. Really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye, everyone.